with us. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we um, continue our study of systematic theology, you would be with us and you would help us. Uh, as we take some time to talk about how systematic theology helps us just in our Bible reading here at the beginning of class, uh, help us to understand your word in, in Joshua 3 and 4 and see the meaning that it has for us and, and, and the uh, importance that it carries with it. And as we get into the next part of the lesson and why the Bible is essential for our faith, we pray that you would help us uh, to see the value of the Bible and, and to value it the way that we ought to. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Yes. Quickly, very quickly. Okay. Um, so we're finishing up 1.1, and then we're going to roll into 1.2, but we've got a couple more things to do with 1.1. Um, the last thing we want to do in this lesson is talk about uh, the different types of theology that we can do. Obviously, in this class, we're focused on what type? Systematic. Systematic. All right, and what are some things we've said about systematic theology, just to review quickly? Okay, it builds off of each subject. We go what by what? Topic by topic. Yeah, basic to harder stuff. Um, you know, start with the elementary fundamental things and then push on further. Uh, yeah? Oh, it synthesizes. Okay, so try to take all the material on a topic, bring it all together. Good. Um, you know, the question that we ask in systematic theology is what does the Bible, what does the Bible say about whatever topic, about blank, okay? Um, there are a few other types of theology that we do as well, and I'm, I'm just going to give these to you so that you can kind of understand systematic theology by contrast, and, and then we're going to do an, an exercise with them. Um, the, the second one, um, you know, another type of theology that we do, we could call exegetical theology. Um, some of you have heard the word exegesis before. Um, theology. Um, exegesis, ek in Greek means out of, and what you're basically doing here is you're pulling meaning out of a specific text. Um, how many of you guys go to a church where you, uh, your, your pastor kind of preaches passage by passage through a book of the Bible? You ever, you ever been, have you ever like seen somebody do that before? You know, uh, your pastor says, we're starting a sermon series on Jonah. So we do Jonah 1 one week and he preaches on that. And what he does is he tries to bring meaning out of Jonah 1. This is what the verse says. Here's what it means. And here's why it's important for you. Uh, that is exegetical theology. Here we're asking what does a specific passage mean? This is what you maybe do in your quiet time sometimes, right? You read Romans 8, 1 through 6, and then you take time and you study it and you say, what does this specific passage teach? All right? Uh, systematic theology, you're taking a lot of passages and you're bringing them all together to figure out what does the Bible teach uh, about this topic? What does the Bible as a whole teach about this topic? Exegetical theology is a, a little bit of a smaller task. You just take one passage and you say, what does this passage say? What does it mean? That makes sense? You guys see the difference there? Okay. So uh, if I were to preach a sermon this Sunday about what does the Bible say about angels? If I was preaching on that topic, 
would that be more systematic or exegetical? More systematic. If I were to say, um, okay, I'm going to preach on Hebrews chapter 1, systematic or exegetical? Exegetical. Exegetical, good. All right. Um, Third one that we can put up here is honestly my favorite. It's what I do in all of my Bible classes. Uh, It's called biblical theology. Um, That's not to say that these other ones are, are, you know, somehow unbiblical. That's not what we're saying. In biblical theology, the question that we're asking is how does the Bible tell one big story? You guys who, especially you guys who had me for Old Testament, we did this a lot. We asked the question, how does this all relate to Christ? How does this all play into the one story, the one big story that the Bible is telling? This is very narrative driven. All right. Reason that I didn't do a biblical theology class this year is because a lot of you guys have already had me for Bible classes. So we've done that a lot. You know, an example of biblical theology would be something like this. Um, You know, lesson I taught Old Testament this morning. Uh, Genesis 1-1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Anybody remember what the heavens and the earth looked like originally? Yeah, without form and void, and it's dark, and the earth is one big what? Yeah, water, one big ocean, right? Um, Do you want to live somewhere that's formless and void, and it's just one big ocean, and it's dark? Does that sound like a place that's, like, a good place for God to be like, here's humanity. You guys got gills? What are you going to do? Drown, right? I've told you guys before, the picture that I always get whenever I read that verse is uh, you're in the middle of the ocean on a stormy night, and the water is dark, so you can't see what's under you, and you're on your back, and you're all by yourself, but you start getting that feeling in the pit of your back like maybe you're not, okay? What does God do right after that, though? What does he say? Let there be light. He, he goes to what's dark and he brings light. And then he goes to what is formless and empty and he starts giving it order and starts filling it with life, right? God goes to a, a, a lifeless, dark thing and he fills it with light and life. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God created the world that way as a picture of your testimony. You once were filled with darkness. You, you once were walking in, in, in sin and darkness, and, and you once didn't have spiritual life, but through the gospel, God, who said, let there be light in the beginning, has spoken light into your life. He's given you the light of the gospel. He's given you life through Jesus Christ. That's how Paul interprets that. That's biblical theology. How does that story relate to the bigger story of the Bible, of, of redemption and what God is doing in Christ? Uh, Another type that we do is called practical theology. Um, Practical theology has to do with Christian living. Um, What does the Bible call me to do? What does it command me to do? What does it command me to believe? What action does the Bible lead me towards? Practical theology. How does this actually affect my everyday life? Is that an important strand of theology? It is. And then my second favorite one, 
behind biblical theology is the one that we did last year. Anybody want to guess the name? Yeah, historical theology. Historical theology is fun to me because sometimes it's crazy. Um, but sometimes it's very insightful as well. Historical theology asks the question, what have Christians, and uh, for those of you that are new, I, I'm going to abbreviate Christian with the X. Some people get kind of offended by that, like if, if people do Xmas or something. Uh, you know, that some people don't like that very much. Uh, the reason I'm doing that is because in, in Greek, um, this is how people would abbreviate Christ or Christian. That's the first letter of Christ or the first letter of Christian. So instead of spelling it out every single time, I'm just going to put the X there just for shorthand. All right. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So so that's um in, in Greek that's the first letter, and so that's been a typical way in biblical studies or in church history studies to abbreviate Christ or Christians. So it's not that I'm trying to you know x out Jesus or x out the church or something like that. It's just so that um you know good thing for for taking notes. So historical theology asks the question: What have Christians typically thought? Um, so you know. Whenever you're reading a certain passage, how have Christians typically interpreted it in the past? Whenever you're doing systematic theology and you're asking, what does the Bible say about salvation? Well, what has the church historically said and taught? Um, you know, it, uh, it's good to sometimes do these things in community and have uh, opinions that are not just your own, right? Okay. So, um, what I would suggest to you is any time that we do anything related to the Bible, we should use all five of these. All right? Which one are we going to be focusing on this year? Systematic. Systematic. Um, but it's going to be kind of impossible for us to do that in a vacuum. Because whenever we're doing systematic theology, are we going to be dealing with individual texts? We will be. Right? We're going to be bringing them all together to say this is what the Bible says big picture about this topic. But we're going to be dealing with individual texts. So we're going to be doing some work here. Uh, we'll be doing some work here. You know, How does the Bible all fit together? Um, anytime we do theology, there is a practical import. God is telling us what to think. He's telling us what to do. Uh, and then at times we will also ask how if Christians... You know, usually understood this, or what are the opinions that the church has had throughout time? Um, you guys want to do an exercise with this quickly? This is uh, one of those things that can uh, maybe help with extra credit a little bit. Um, I told you guys I had an elective class this summer on the book of Joshua, and I had to write a really long research paper for that. And I'm not going to get into all of the boring parts of the research paper because admittedly there are some parts that even whenever I wrote them, I thought, huh, this is not fun, right? Uh, I had to deal with something called source criticism and it's, it's not one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm not going to get into, you know, kind of the, the, the nitty gritty, but there are some parts that I found very intriguing and interesting. And using these different types of theology helped me as I wrote that paper. And so... Uh, you guys open to Joshua 3 and 4. Anytime that we do anything with the book of Joshua this semester, 
you can expect that there will be extra credit opportunities attached to it. So this is one of those, okay? I would still take notes. I would still try to remember stuff because, I, you know, next few days I could say, here's a quiz. You know, do you remember the stuff we went over with Joshua? And that quiz cannot hurt you. It can only help you. It'll be extra credit, all right? Um, Joshua 3 and 4 is the story of Israel crossing the Jordan River. Okay, uh, They have come out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness for how many years? Anybody remember? 40. And now they're about to enter into the promised land of Canaan under Joshua. But first, there's an obstacle in their way. The Jordan River is at full flood. All right. And they're, they're having to get past it and enter into the promised land. All right. Um, Somebody read for us Joshua. Well, this is kind of long. Maybe we don't read it all. Um, Somebody read Joshua 3, verses 14 through 17. Who wants? Emma, go for it. Joshua 3, 14 through 17. Okay, so somebody else quickly summarize what just happened. And they walked through on dry ground. Good. Uh, and they crossed really close to what important city? Jericho. Jericho. Right? That's the city they're going to fight in just a couple of chapters. So can the people of Jericho see this happening? Probably. Probably. Right? All right, they cross right across from Jericho. All right, somebody else uh, read chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 for us, please. Chloe. Joshua called 12, 12 men from the people of Israel whom he appointed. 
Okay, somebody else summarize what we see in that passage. They, they've crossed over the Jordan, and then what do they do? It takes the stones out of the, like, where the dry spot they walked over, mm-hmm. and they, they stack them where they were going to camp that night. Yeah, they, they go to a place called Gilgal. It gets named later on, and they make a stone monument there to remember what God had done, how he had split the Jordan for them. They make a monument at Gilgal. How many monuments do they actually make, though? Hmm? They make one at Gilgal, the place where they settle. Somebody look at verse 9 and tell me where the other one is made. Who said it? Sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear whoever that was. Yeah, they put one in the middle of the Jordan where the priest had stood. So there's two monuments. All right, one where they settle, one where the priesthood stood. And then um, let's skip down chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Somebody read that one for me. Uh, Robert, go ahead. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen. Okay. Passover, yeah. That's my dad's birthday. Okay, cool. So um, in, in, in that passage um, that Robert just read, what is this event compared with? The Red Sea crossing. Crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan, according to Joshua, are, you know, basically the, the same type of thing. Both of them, what happens to the water? Ripped in half and then Israel crosses over on dry land, all right? So um, based on what we've read, what should this passage teach you about God? This is our exegetical theology, all right? What is this passage teaching you? It's teaching you some history about Israel and, and them going into the promised land. What is it teaching you maybe about God? Okay, God is very powerful, powerful enough that the Jordan is at full strength and that doesn't matter to God. He can stop it. What else does it teach you about God? What would happen to Israel if God didn't do this miracle and they tried to cross the Jordan? What might happen? They might drown. What does it show you about God and his relationship to Israel? That he cares about them. All right. Uh, What else could you maybe get out of this story? What else does this story teach you? Yeah, okay, so we just did some exegetical theology. What does this passage mean? And, and now Aubrey's taking us into some practical theology. Practical theology asks the question, what should I do based on this text? What is this text calling me to do uh, kind of action-wise? And, and Aubrey looks, and what does he tell them to set up? Two monuments, and what do those monuments help them do? Remember the actions that God has done previously. So maybe this, you could, you could say this text calls us to action. It calls us to remembrance. Um, 
what is the greatest action, according to scripture, what is the greatest action God has ever done in the history of the world? Yeah, Jesus died and was resurrected. And we're called to remember that. We're called to have that fresh in our minds. Uh, Maybe another thing that we could get out of this, that that this story is calling us to do, is um, you guys who are believers, have you ever prayed and God answered it? Or has there ever been a need in your life and you feel like God's met it? Do you remind yourself of those things? Next time that you get in a sticky situation, do you cast your mind back and say, God took care of me then, he'll take care of me now? Do you remember those things? The text is calling you to do that. Practical theology again. Why are the monuments actually set up, though? It is to remember, but it's for an, a, a totally different reason as well. What, is, what, is, what are they supposed to help Israel do in the future? Teach their children. So what is one of the things that this text is calling you to do? Are there children in your life? If you're a believer then, what is this text calling you to do? Teach them what? Yeah, teach them about God and his mighty works. Good. So there's some practical theology. Uh, this text actually does some biblical theology for you as well. Does it connect two stories in the Bible? What two stories? This one, the crossing of the Jordan, and what else? The Red Sea, and Joshua just comes out and tells you at the end, uh, these, you need to think about these events together. All right, how does systematic theology help us here? Let me tell you uh, how this happened whenever I was writing this research paper. In systematic theology, later this semester, we're going to talk about a concept called Christus Victor. Uh, Christus, what is that? Make it English. Christ, uh, what does Victor look like? Oh, actually, I already wrote it up there. Victory. Yeah, uh, this is Jesus's victory. Uh, There's a concept in the New Testament that one of the things that Jesus does on the cross is he fights against the powers of sin and darkness and, and, and the powers of the devil. Uh, somebody, uh, I've got two texts here. Somebody read Colossians 2.15. Who can do that one? Colossians 2. Autumn, uh, get us Colossians 2.15. And then somebody for us do Hebrews 2.14 and 15. You want to do that one? Okay. Uh, so, so you guys flip there. And then Autumn, whenever you're there, uh, read it for us nice and loud, please. Colossians 2.15, and then Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. These verses help us see that one of the things God or Jesus does at the cross is he fights against, you know, antagonistic spiritual powers. Okay, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Are you there? Okay, go ahead and read Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 for us. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Those are all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. So in that passage Slade just read, could you guys hear him pretty good? In that passage, Jesus died on the cross to do what? Okay, free us from the devil. What word does it actually use? Jesus died to do what to Satan? Destroy 
Did you hear that? Jesus died in order to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What is he doing at the cross? He's destroying Satan. Okay? Do you have Colossians 2? Yeah. Will you read verse 15, please? So the rulers and authorities in that text, that's referring, I think, to Satan and his little demon minions. All right? Uh, there are these little yellow guys who have one eye and say banana a lot. No, no. All right. Um, my wife hates those minions so much. She probably thinks they are demonic. Um, but uh, that text, the rulers and authorities mentioned there are probably Satan and, and his, his minions, his demons. And it says that one of the things Jesus did at the cross is he put them to shame. You know, they, they tried to kill the Son of God in order to frustrate God's plan of redemption, and, and instead they played right into God's hands. He took away their power by taking away his people's sin. He, he made it where the accuser can accuse no more. He triumphed over those antagonistic powers. So there's this theme throughout the Bible that we study in systematic theology that one of the things that God does throughout the scriptures, one of the things he does in his plan of redemption is he defeats the, the false gods. He defeats, uh, you know, Satan is called the God of this world. God goes to war against those bad, hostile, antagonistic powers, and he triumphs over them. One of the clearest places where this happens in the Bible is in the Exodus. How many plagues are there in the Exodus? There's ten. All right. And each of those plagues, you guys who had me for Old Testament, what's significant about each one of those plagues? What are they aimed against? One of the Egyptian gods. All right. So there's an Egyptian goddess. I think her name is Hect. H-E-K-T. And Hect is a, a goddess of like fertility and health. And she looks like a giant personified frog. Can you think of a plague that is aimed against Hect? All the frogs. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as a source of life. What is the first plague? What does Moses do to the Nile? Turns it into blood. The most famous of all the Egyptian gods is Ra. What is Ra the god of? The sun. Ninth plague, what does God do to the sun? Makes it go dark. So in each of the plagues, God is you know, we could say kind of going to war against the false gods of Egypt, and he's showing them they're not the ones that are in charge of the sun and the frogs and anything else. You know, you think that those gods are, are, are in charge of those different dominions, and what God is saying is I'm the one who's really in charge of each one of those. All right? Um, one more time. What event is the crossing of the Jordan tied to? Yeah, the parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus. It's, it's tied to all of these plagues. The parting of the Red Sea is the end of the 10th plague, by the way, right? So a question that I asked myself as I was doing this research paper is this. I, I said to myself, I know throughout the Bible there's this theme that uh, God, through Jesus, goes to war against these evil spiritual powers. I know that in the Exodus, that happens in the 10 plagues. And I know that the Jordan River crossing and the Red Sea crossing are related. 
So the question I asked is, is there anything of this spiritual warfare happening in Joshua 3 and 4 in the crossing of the Jordan? And the answer was yes, there is. Um, Where do they cross the Jordan at? Right next to what city? Jericho. Jericho's main god is a fellow by the name of Bel. Bel is the god of the sky. Do what? I think I think that's Dagon that looks like a fish, uh, and and he's associated more with Philip, the Philistines. Um, Bel is the god of the sky, and so what I started doing, which I thought would be really boring and wound up being really fun, is I started reading Canaanite religious material, and lo and behold, I found something very interesting. Bel has an enemy, and Bel's enemy is called Yom. And Yom is the god of rivers. And Yom beats the absolute snot out of Bel. I mean bad. Yom and Bel start fighting because Bel's dad favors Yom over him. And then Bel is really hurt that daddy loves this other guy more than he loves me. So they start fighting. And Yom beats Bel left, right, and silly. I mean, it is brutal. And Yom is about to kill Bel, and then this other god, who's buddies with Bel, shows up and takes a club and hits Yom over the head, and then Bel gets up and is like, yeah, I told you I'd beat you, and then rips Yom in half and kills him. But which one is stronger, Bel or Yom? Yom. So, if you're a person living in Jericho, and you worship Bel, uh, and you see the god of the Israelites... Come up to a river, and what would the river, what would the river symbolize? Yom. You see the God of Israel come up to this river, and like the second the Ark of the Covenant steps into the river, what happens to Yom? Is there even a fight? No. He rips this dude in half, and then this army starts walking towards you. If you're the people of Jericho, how do you feel? Yeah, a little nervous. Uh, Bell can't beat Yom. The God of Israel just absolutely wrecked y'all. So what's he going to do to Bel? It's going to be bad. And what is Israel going to do to Jericho? Where did they come up with this story? I don't know. It probably... <laughs> the Greeks did. The Greeks got like super high and then they wrote all of their religious material. So um, I don't know if you guys knew that, but like they totally did. That is a very well-established historical fact. The Greeks like ate shrooms and then they had these psychedelic visions... And then after that, they were like, this is what I saw from the gods, all right? So I don't know. Maybe it's something like that with the Canaanites. Who knows? Um, But, um, okay, so keep reading in this myth um, because I'm interested by this point. And there's a part where Bel and Yom start getting in a verbal alteration. They start trash-talking each other. Well, before he dies. Thank you. (laughs) Before, before, uh, Before Bel rips Yom in half, he says something interesting he calls him powerless, serpentine God. What does a river kind of look like? Kind of looks like a snake. Bell, or sorry, Yom is always represented as a serpent. So I don't know. Help me with this. Israel is walking into the promised land. 
And the very first thing that they do is um, the Ark of the Covenant is also called the what of God. Not what it is, but footstool of God. The very first thing that happens in the conquest is God's footstool tramples over a serpent, and so does Israel. They step on the serpent as they cross over into... I don't know. Is there like some biblical imagery that I should be picking up on there? Um, there's like this huge promise in Genesis 3 that something's going to happen. What is it? Um, God says in Genesis 3.15, he curses the serpent and says, I'll put enmity between you and between the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he'll do what to your head? He'll crush your head. And what is the first thing that happens in the conquest? What does Israel do? What does God do first thing in the conquest? The, the serpent god of Canaan dies, and they walk on its head. Is that a good picture? Yeah. What does the serpent represent, big picture in the Bible? Satan, right? Evil and Satan. And the conquest begins with them trampling on the serpent's head. All right, so we've seen how... Just reading the text gives us a lot of meaning, exegetical theology. We've seen how it connects the Red Sea and, 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 the, and the Jordan in biblical theology. We've looked at practical theology. Here's what it calls us to do. Systematic theology helped us follow a rabbit trail that brought a lot of meaning out of the text. Like, do you see this just reading the text? But if you know to look for it, you can find it. Um, last one is historical theology. Uh, as I was reading what other Christians in times past have seen in this passage, um, the, the connection from the, between the Red Sea and the Jordan led them down one other rabbit trail. Um, Asia. Will you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. This is a passage that the early church, anytime they comment on Joshua 3 and 4, they bring up. Yeah, one through four. Read it for us. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. All right, so they, um, it, it talks about the ancestors passing through the sea, and what does it call it? In that passage, they call it a baptism into what? Baptism into Moses. Um, that's kind of an interesting phrase. Um, the Red Sea and the Jordan, you know, the Jordan is just the Red Sea repeated. Um, so if the Red Sea was a baptism, what could we call the Jordan? We could, we could call it a baptism. It's a new generation, totally new people. So it's a new baptism for them. And who would they be baptized this time? Who is their leader? Yeah, over here they were baptized into Moses because he was their leader. Over here they're baptized into Joshua. Um, Joshua has a, you know, who has the same name as Joshua later in the Bible? So if you wanted to, you could call this one a baptism into what, what Joshua is the same name as what? So you could call this one a baptism into Joshua, or you could call it a baptism into Jesus, because that name is identical. 
Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek. Um, that's significant. Because Christians are baptized into who? Baptized into the name of Jesus. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Right? Um, so if we're talking about baptism theology later in this semester, we get to the topic, what does the Bible teach about baptism? Guess what passage we need to deal with? Because the Bible is telling you that this is a picture of baptism. Now, a couple questions. Um, crossing of the Jordan being a baptism, did the people get very wet? No, they cross on what? They cross on dry ground, so that's significant. That's a little bit strange. Um, and then on top of that, who crosses? Who out of Israel crosses? All of them. Not some of them, but, but, but all of them. Um, you know, not to show my hand too much, but um, did this generation of Israelites leave their small children on the other side of the Jordan and say, well, we just want them to grow up and experience this for themselves? You know, we're just going to leave our, our babies over there and not give this to them so that one day they can grow up and do the. Is that what they did? Or did they also experience this baptism into Jesus? So if we're talking about believers-only baptism and infant baptism, this is a text we need to deal with. If you hold to believers-only baptism, you need an answer. And you could pretty easily come up with one, I think. Um, if you hold to baptism by full immersion, well, here's a baptism. Uh, over here, did they go underwater? No, they passed through the water. Over here, they passed through the water. So uh, whenever we talk about mode of baptism, this is something we have to consider, too. This is a passage we have to talk about. I wouldn't have seen that if I hadn't had a little bit of help from other, other believers. They were okay. pretty surrounded by one. They were surrounded by one. Yeah, they were. But did they? Right. Who gets dunked in the story? In, 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 the, in the Red Sea story, who gets dunked? The Egyptians. The Egyptians do. They die, right? So, um, you know, we'll have to talk about it. Again, I'm going to actually probably whenever we get there to baptism theology show you why I would never use this as a uh, as a proof text against baptism by immersion. This is not where I would go for that. But um, anyways, you guys see that this is at least something that we would have to talk about, right? Historical theology helps us make that connection. All right? So um, any questions on, on any of that? See how all these different strands help us pull more and more meaning out of the text. Aubrey's smiling because he knows that I'm getting myself in trouble. So, all right. All right, uh, that's the end of 1.1. We'll get a little ways into 1.2. So go ahead and do 1.2. It's entitled, Why We Need the Bible. yesterday Simon took off his diaper and Mackenzie said it's bad and I didn't know if that was what type of bad that was fortunately she was able to get the diaper back on before anything terrible happened she said it was bad because this could be a repeated thing though and next time we might not be so quick so keep us in your thoughts and prayers you know send good vibes our ways uh that would not be a fun day so why we need the bible 
We just finished 1.1. This is 1.2. If it's if you get a little bit off with that, that's okay. Don't worry about it. All right. So we've already made the point that in theology, uh, theology is the study of God and the way that God has primarily revealed himself to us is through his written word, which is, you know, the scriptures, which is the Bible. Um, so I say there, though, that he has done, he, he's primarily revealed himself through the Bible. Um, there are other ways that God has revealed himself to mankind. Whenever we talk about um, God revealing himself, um, there, there are two vocabulary terms that we need to get down. One of them is general revelation. Uh, what word do you see in revelation? Reveal, all right? So um, if, I, if I'm talking to you about revelation, if I use that term, I'm meaning how does God reveal himself to you? How does he show himself? How does he teach about himself, all right? Um, general revelation is the ways that God, uh, sorry, how God reveals himself to all mankind. There are ways, according to the Bible, that God reveals himself to all humanity, to the entire created order. All right? Um, this is probably as far as we're going to get. I'll, I'll have someone read one passage, and then we'll probably have to call it a day. Um, somebody, maybe who hasn't read yet, um, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, please. Landon, go ahead. In that text, Landon just read, Psalm 19 says that God teaches about himself. He reveals himself in a certain way. What does he use in that text? That was a Psalm 19, 1 through 4. What does he use in that text to teach about himself, reveal himself? Yeah, all of creation, right? Uh, we'll look at this in a couple more passages tomorrow, but according to Psalm 19, 1 through 4, God reveals himself through creation. Creation points all of us to the creator. All right? How many people in the world experience creation? Everyone. So everyone experiences creation, and creation points everyone to the fact that there is a creator. The order that we see in the world, the the design that we see in the world, uh, it shows that God is creative, that he's powerful, that he's wise. Uh, it points us to the creator himself. This is one way that God reveals that he is there. It's one way that he teaches us certain things about himself. And we'll look at a, a couple of um, 
other passages pertaining to this first thing tomorrow. All right. Uh, any questions on anything? We got a few more minutes. Emma. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, one of you probably needs to email me tomorrow and remind me. Okay. Yeah, that would be good. Okay, any other questions?